Hey guys, I'm so glad you decided to join us. My name is Bethany. I'm Emmanuel Baptist's uh, college student techie, basically the unpaid intern. Um, <laughs> and we're so glad you decided to join us today. Uh, just a couple things before we start the episode. Um, first of all, the audio is pulled from our Facebook Live video, so that means the quality isn't that great. But the good news is you can go to our Facebook page to watch the video in its entirety. I'll put the link in the description, and that'll include the singing and all of that. Um, we know the quality isn't that great, but we created this podcast. I put podcast in air quotes. Um, so you can listen to the sermon, whether you're working or driving or whatever. Um, so anyway, so glad you're here and enjoy. says here in the note, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. If you remember, he was mad, acting as if he was mad so that he could get out from before the king. Think how low he had to sink to feign madness before a king, another king. The fruit of brokenness. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. On the next slide here, you'll notice the island of Lewis in Scotland. And you might be thinking, why is that up there? Why is that island up there? 
You can see that there's rocks that are standing upright. That's one of the historic things there. And there's also your typical Scottish, Irish looking um, huts there on the island. The island has 18,500 people or so in it. So it's not a big island, it's just a small island off the coast in the northern and northeastern section. But the reason we have that up there is that it's going to serve as our example. A small band of church leaders had been praying earnestly for revival in their community, a village on the island or the Isle of Lewis, an island just off the coast of Scotland. They were particularly burdened for the young people of the island who had no interest in spiritual matters and scorned the things of God. For 18 months, they met three nights a week, praying through the night, right on to the early hours of the morning, beseeching God to come and visit and revive them. But there was no evidence of any change. Then one night, a young man of the group rose to his feet. He opened his Bible and read from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall dwell in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. Facing the men around him, the young man said, Brethren, it seems to me to be just so much humbug, to be waiting and praying as we are, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. There in the straw, the men knelt and humbly confessed their sins to the Lord. With a short, within a short period of time, God had begun to pour out His Spirit in an extraordinary awakening that shook the entire land. So our first point here. Before revival can come to a church, it must first come to the hearts and lives of that church's individual members. If the impact of the work of the Holy Spirit is to be felt in a home, in a church, or in a nation, revival must first be experienced on a personal level in the hearts of men and women who have encountered God in a fresh way. So again, our first point is that revival must come individually. The single great, greatest hindrance to our experiencing personal revival is our unwillingness to humble ourselves and confess our desperate need for His mercy. Our generation has been programmed to pursue happiness. As a matter of fact, when they did a survey, what's the one thing that you want for your child? Most everybody answered for them to be happy. 
them to be happy. And at first glance, that doesn't seem wrong. But think about that. Is that what we really want most of all? You might say you'd want a godly job. Or you want one that was holy. But that doesn't always mean happy. A person can be happy, at least on some level, doing something sinful. Happiness is not to be our goal. Wholeness. So again, our generation has been uh, programmed to pursue happiness, wholeness, good feelings about ourselves, positive self-image, affirmation, cures for damaged hearts. We've been led to think that life's goal is happiness, yet most struggle to find happiness or to even know what happiness is. Our goal should be holiness. Holiness in our lives. When holiness comes, then comes peace. When holiness comes, then comes joy. When holiness comes, then comes happiness. God is more committed to making us holy than making us happy. And there is only one pathway to holiness. One road to genuine revival. And that pathway is one of humility and, we could say it this way, brokenness. But what is holiness? Often, we assume that everyone knows what this biblical word means, holiness. But we often find they are not understood or people have the wrong idea of what that word means. <clears throat> the word means to be separated from that which is not God. The first time the word is found in God's word, in his Bible, is Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. God told Moses as he stared at the burning bush that he was to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. In other words, the place was sacred, being used by our Lord and our God. Think back to that. We all know the story. You see the burning bush. Moses is there and he sees that burning bush. And he's told to take off his shoes for, there, for he is standing on holy ground. He's in the Lord's presence. And therefore, it's holy. Something that is holy is something that is sacred. Or something that is separated unto the Lord. It can be people. It can be places. It can be things. But what makes them holy is that they are the, in the Lord's service. Separated from the world or any other use, they are the Lord's. We can see that in the commandment of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, to keep the Sabbath day holy. That means separated from other use, dedicated to use by the Lord God. The Sabbath is to be kept holy. But we are to be kept holy. Consecrating Israel in Levit Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, 
and you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The word used there in Leviticus 26, I have separated. You have the original King James, you'd have severed. God divided Israel from the nations and the peoples around them. He severed them from the other nations. Ask yourselves, is my life severed from a worldly life? Or am I caught up in the things of the world? Next, Scripture makes it clear that we are to be holy for I am holy, as the Lord God writes in 1 Peter 1, 16. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. We are called to be holy because he is holy. Romans 6, 22 says this. Again, Romans 6, 22. But now having seen, excuse me, but now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. You have your fruit. Our opening picture there was that of grapes. Anybody else besides me eat fruit? Pretty delicious, isn't it? Nice. Um, when I was growing up, there used to be that ad campaign, Summer, Summer Fruits. It wouldn't be summer without that. Anybody else hear that? No, okay, anyway. You knew it was summertime because there was fruit. Not like today where you can get fruit all year round. It was more particularly in the summertime. But you get that fruit. Fruit to holiness. That sweet thing that we should long after. Holiness. And the end, everlasting life. But notice the wording it says, in having become slaves to God. We know that we found our freedom in Christ. But we know Scripture is very clear saying we've become slaves to Christ. We've been bought with a price. And a slave is to do what the Master wants. And the Lord God wants us to be separated from the world. Now over the years there's been different ideas of what exactly separated means. And that will probably be continued to be up debate. But we're not to get legalistic about it, as many have done in, that, in the past. But let's be separated, kept pure, kept holy, avoidance of sin for the Lord our God. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the High and Lofty One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. So we see over and over again, contrite spirit, humble heart. Isaiah 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. 
These, O oh God, you will not despise. God requires brokenness. He requires contrition if we are to have his best. God is close or nigh only to those who are humble. He resists the proud, we know. God ministers to, revives, strengthens, and quickens those who have a contrite heart. So I ask myself, am I contrite? Remember in our opening example that those men knelt and confessed their sins to the Lord their God. They were contrition. They had an act of contrition there. They were contrite. They were pouring out their hearts, saying, Lord, I've done this against you. David, against you only have I sinned, O Lord. We often think of revival as a time of great joy, as a time of blessing, as a time of fullness and celebration. And so it will be in its fullness. But the problem is we want painless revival. Many want God's blessing without repentance or personal revival. We forget that God's ways are not our ways. The way up, is often said, is down. Peterus Octavianus, Octavianus, was used in 1973 in a revival in Borneo. He reminds us, revivals do not begin happily when everyone is having a good time. They start with a broken and contrite heart. You, I, will never meet God in revival until we first meet Him in a word that we don't like, broken. At first, hearing brokenness, it doesn't sound like something we want to seek. After all, it sounds pretty negative. We might even be afraid of the concept. Perhaps it is because we have a misconception about brokenness. Our idea of brokenness may be quite different than God's idea. Brokenness does not mean as something as having a sad, gloomy, downcast countenance never smiling or laughing. It's not the Puritan idea. That's somberness. That's not it. It doesn't mean always having a morbid introspective, nor can it be equated with deeply emotional experiences. It is possible to shed all sorts of tears without ever really experiencing brokenness. Furthermore, brokenness is not the same as being hurt by tragic circumstances. A person may have experienced many deep hurts and tragedies, but not be broken. Brokenness is a matter of the heart. It has to do with the disposition of the inner person, the inner conviction wherein we must not trust ourselves. It's having a desire to be dead to sin and alive to God. Let me say that again. Dead to sin and alive to God. Realizing what sins we've done, what sins are in our lives, and the desire to turn from them and live for the Lord our God. 
It's a matter of being crucified with Christ, hating sin, submitting to Him totally. Brokenness is not a feeling, rather it is a choice, an act of the will. We hear the same thing about love. Love is a choice. Brokenness is a choice. It is not a primary one-time experience, though there might be crisis points in our life. It's an ongoing, continual lifestyle. Brokenness is a lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of my heart, of my life, seeing it as He sees it. Brokenness means shattering self-will. Again, a very concept that's contrary to our society. Shattering self-will. So that the life of the Spirit, that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus may be released through me. Brokenness is my response of humility and obedience to the conviction of the Word of God. And as the conviction is continuous, so must our brokenness be continuous. True brokenness has both vertical and horizontal. It's a willingness to have the roof off, so to speak, to being open and apparent this way to the Lord our God, to having the walls down around us, and having that vertical relationship with others. Scripture gives us great examples of broken people. For example, two kings sat on the throne. One king, in a fit of passion, committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, and then plotted to have his neighbor killed. Yet when the story of his life is told, this man was called a man after God's own heart. By contrast, his predecessor's sin was relatively insignificant, so to speak. He was guilty of incomplete obedience, but it cost him his kingdom, his life, and his family. That king was David. What was the difference? When King Saul was confronted with his sin, he defended it. He justified. He excused himself. He blamed others and tried to cover up both the sin and its consequences. In short, his response revealed his proud heart, his unbroken heart. On the other hand, when David was faced with his sin, he was willing to acknowledge his failure, to take responsibility for his wrongdoing, and to repent of his sin. His response was that of a humble, broken man. And his heart was the heart that God honored. And again, Psalm 51, which we sang a portion of earlier, changed my heart of God. David penned that after had been revealed to him. And he knew what he had done with Bathsheba was known. Coming to a place of brokenness demands a willingness to humble ourselves, to look at the light, our lives in light of God's awesome searchlight. God's word. Jesus said in John 15, if you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken that you, that you, that my joy remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So again, if we want to have joy, not happiness, if we want to have joy, keep God's commandments. Romans 5, 2. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice evermore. 1 Peter 4. But to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you will be glad with exceeding joy. But the rejoice, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Brokenness. When we partake in Christ's sufferings. When we realize who we are before our holy God. So just wrapping things up. We began in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as I has, have a contrite spirit. Is my heart broken today? Do I have a contrite spirit? We went on to Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And again, Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. God uses the word contrite to describe the broken heart. It literally means to be crushed. Again, contrite. To be crushed. Am I crushed? Am I broken before the Lord my God? In Isaiah 53.10, the word is used in reference to the Lord Jesus. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was, he has to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Again, the word bruise is the same word as contrite. To be crushed. To be broken. Yet it pleased the Lord to break him. Getting back to Psalm 34 again. The Lord is near to those who have a broken, and, a broken heart and save such as has a contrite spirit. That means God is with the person who sees him or herself crushed in the admitting of his or her sins. And in being in turn to repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. God cannot favor or bless the proud or the unrepentant who deny their sin. All who Christ receive come with a contrite heart and a humble spirit. Anybody, the publican, or the tax collector who went away 
justified. Think of the example that Jesus gave. Am I saying the wrong word? I think you are. Yeah, I'm using the wrong word. The tax collector or the Pharisee. Yeah, the publican is the King James word. Yeah. Thank you. Pharisee. So the Pharisee, no wonder everyone's looking at me like, what's he talking about? The Pharisee. Or the tax collector. Which one went away? The tax collector. Because he was humble. He was contrite. He knew he had done wrong and he confessed it to the Lord his God. But yet the Pharisee was up saying, woe is me, I'm glad I'm not like this person. All who receive Christ come with a contrite heart, a humble spirit. He revives the spirit in the heart of the humble. That, mean he get, that means he gives them new life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and heaven. So again, we ask ourselves this question. Do I have a contrite heart that confesses sin and failure to the Lord? Those that do have 1 John 1, 9 and 10 as God's promise to us. Turn if you will there now, and we'll close with that. First John, chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and his word is not in us. God, we know, speaks to each one of us today. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and urging, empowering us to be humble, to have a contrite heart, and to receive his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you from this this reminder from your word here today that we are to have a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, we know that you resist the proud, so help us not to be puffed up. Help us not to have the wrong impression of ourselves. We are nothing, but you are everything. And through you, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Lord, give me the strength to have a, a real look at myself. Give me the strength to see myself as you see. Lord, we just ask these things in your name. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus, Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen.